when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. for the judges and this multi-millionaire mogul now has the best kind of goal. It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for an absolute massive interview. I have to take a breath there and pause and, and even understand what we're about to bring you today in an interview itself, because we're here to chat to a two-time Olympian who, let's be honest, some people probably even forget this guy is an Olympian because he's gone on to create such a, a stellar career outside of his Olympic career as a, a, an entertainment person, a broadcaster, a singer, the reality shows, books, you name it, he's done it. Johnny Weir, or as you'll hear me say in this introduction, just Johnny. Kind of like <laughs> Will and Grace, just Johnny. Um, and I tell you what, I'm not even just trying to be that fluffer at the beginning of an episode going, oh, you're about to listen to an amazing episode, because this is just an absolutely incredible, amazing interview and episode. So amazing, so big, so incredible that I couldn't do it by myself because we've got the number one Canadian man. It's Colin Hilding. That's it, Colin. I've, I've anointed yep. you the number one Canadian man. You are welcome. Uh, you know, it's funny, though, you say that uh, you couldn't have done this one yourself because, like, in all honesty, <laughs> either of us could have done this ourselves and it still would have been the easiest day at the office. Like, this is a dream interview, both in terms of big-name guests that you thought, hey, maybe we got a shot at it one day down the road and then it finally happens, but dream guests is in... You ask this guy a question and he's going to give you the answer to the next six questions, you know, and, and way more material than I think we ever expected to get out of him. I mean, this is has to hands down be one of the easiest interviews we've ever done. And also one of the best, uh, yeah. all those sort of levels. Johnny is so honest and open with everything and talks to uh, great lengths about his time at the Olympics, experiences, everything along those lines, growing up, what other Olympic sport we could have been talking to him about. I get a bit excited talking about Eurovision. Um, there's there's meatloaf in here, which of course there always is. Uh, there, there's talk ab- about acting, and and there's even talk about Zoolander in this episode, which uh, we, we won't spoil it for you. But there's so much here to get to that I'm going to shut up and pass over to myself because here is our chat with two-time American Olympic figure skater Johnny Weir. <laughs> Such an absolute honor to welcome our next guest to the show today. I don't really even need to give him much of an introduction. I think this guy, you could literally just call him one name, kind of like 
Madonna, Rihanna. You could just say Johnny and people would know who he is. He's that iconic, not only in the world of entertainment today, but of course, figure skating, a two-time Olympian. He is, of course, also six US championship medals, a bronze at the world champions, a junior world championship. And can I also just say this as well? an expert on all things Eurovision, which we are going to talk yes. about, which is not something we have to talk about on this show, but we will be touching it on today. It's a pleasure to welcome Johnny Weir. Johnny, welcome to Off the Podium. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for bringing up Eurovision. It was one of the questions I was going to ask you, in fact, and like, I want to understand everything about Australia and Eurovision because I always root for Australia just because it's so out of left field oh. that they're a part of Eurovision, but I, I always love it. It's it's something that, trust me, we can add an extra three hours on this podcast, Johnny, because one of our sister shows, our side shows, which when we get to that question, is on Eurovision. And our, our co-host, my esteemed co-host here as a Canadian, he's he popped his Eurovision virginity this year as well. So I did. Well done. Yeah, yeah, no, there's <laughs> lots of Eurovision angles that we will cover today on this Olympics Good. podcast. Don't you worry about that. But w- one thing I wanted to start off, with because it's fascinating to me your equestrian background johnny this is a this is a weird way to start on a figure skating interview but we could have been talking to you today about maybe an equestrian olympic career because that's the sport you started in isn't it it is and it's uh so america's huge right and the area that i come from is a horse sort of area it's lots of farms lots of cows my village that i grew up in literally had one stoplight (laughs) and everyone was the same everyone's parents had the same jobs everyone went to the same school the same church whatever the case may have been and horses were a big part of our lives and um, my father actually grew up on a farm and his father broke horses it sounds horrible but it's how they teach horses to wear saddles and to get used to a rider and he would break horses for a lot of the big equestrian academies in the area. And while it seems very fancy for <laughs> for a kid to get into horseback riding, it was just something that came naturally because we had access to a lot of the big barns. And um, I thought about an Olympic career in equestrian, but ultimately I found figure skating and I had to make a decision. You, you know what I, pinpointed there was the use of the word village. I mean, one of the towns I grew up in, the metropolis of LaSalle, Manitoba, was classified as a village when I lived there. And I couldn't imagine being able to do anything competitively in a small town like that. Uh, I mean, what are the options, whether it be for equestrian or figure skating, for getting like coaching or or, uh, competing when you're living in such a small environment? Well, to be fair, when I first caught the figure skating bug, so In the United States, figure skating was wildly popular uh, from the Dorothy Hamill and the Peggy Fleming era. And then, of course, in the 90s, we had the major scandal drama of Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. So that was when I was just sort of entering my formative years and was obsessed, like the rest of my country, with figure skating and all of the drama inside it. And I decided that I wanted to try figure skating. So what does one do when there's no access to a figure skating arena in the area? You ask your parents for some skates. I had some used skates that were so flimsy they could have been made out of paper. (laughs) And I skated on a frozen cornfield behind my house. And I know that sounds really TV movie of me, (laughs) but seriously, that's how it all began just kind of standing on this giant field, this skinny little kid all by himself, 
dreaming of becoming Oksana Bayul one day. Which I was going to ask back in 94 when you mentioned Nancy and, and Tonya, you were crazy. You were, you were crazy for Oksana. As, as, let's be honest, most of us were, you know, and we still are, <laughs> you know, all these years later. But how, how does that go down when everybody's sort of following that? But you're, you're cheering for this, you know, young Ukrainian instead that then is a massive, obviously, influence on your career. Absolutely. I think uh, that's the thing about Olympic sports or Eurovision or or the world that we live in as far as entertainment is concerned is that something attracts you to certain artists, to certain athletes, to certain football clubs, whatever the case may be. And Oksana Bayul's story, it just really rang true to me at that time and, and still does. She came from Dnipropetrovsk, now Dnipro, which is the fourth largest city in in Ukraine. Great pronunciation, she, Johnny. I'm so glad that you did that, not not us. That's like fantastic. Like you do it for a living or something. <laughs> yeah, or you do Europe because you've got to pronounce all these things. You're used to it. <laughs> <laughs> and we do have to, when I'm commentating, we have to pronounce a lot of names from all over the world. And I really try to be a citizen of the world and, and do my best to pronounce things properly. But I'm a Russian speaker. I'm a French speaker. So it, it the language background helps. But um, her story was that of an orphan who ultimately went on to captivate the entire world in a, a boa-covered pink dress while the rest of the world was focused on something else. She stole that moment and, and made it her own, and the world sort of stood up for her. This orphan girl from the middle of nowhere, um, in my <laughs> opinion at that time, the middle of nowhere, Ukraine, um, and I just found that to be so inspiring for a young kid watching the Olympics at home. At that point, I was kind of uh, over the the American drama of Tanya and Nancy, and I was just so interested in how the other athletes were going to deal with that pressure. And I had no idea what that must have felt like at that age, but Oksana captivated me, and I knew that if she could do it, I could do it too. This is kind of like the way that we were growing up, except we never amounted to anything in sports. You know, we're just the fans <laughs> of the Olympics. And Still time, you, Colin. We, Come on. Oh, got a, yeah, a little bit of time left as soon as like, ping pong gets introduced. Uh, I mean, to, curling. Yes. Curling, yes. There's still an option with that. Uh, I don't even have to skate for it. It's even better. But, uh, but you know, often we get people on here, it's like they're into a sport, and they're they just keep competing and they get good at that and they're like oh maybe the olympics is an option i mean it kind of sounds like you went out at the opposite direction which is those are the types of stories that i love is when somebody just says i want to be in the olympics i mean was that sort of an ultimate goal for you was there ever a point where you're like okay maybe if it doesn't work out in figure skating i could always fall back on equestrian or curling or something like that well uh, so I didn't grow up with with much and certainly not as far as access to an ice rink or any understanding of what figure skating training really entails. And my sport is judged. There's politics and finding the right coach and being at the right training facility. All of that was completely foreign to me and I knew nothing of it. I just knew after watching Osana Bayou win the Olympic gold medal, I thought that it's something that I could do too not realizing that most figure skaters start skating when they're two, three, four years old. And I was already 10 at that point, And I didn't really start skating until I was 12. And it was, it was just something that I dreamt of. I, I, I only wanted to go to the Olympics, even if I didn't realize how that was going to happen. That's what I wanted. And nine years after that first step on a real skating rink, I was at the Olympics. 
It's an incredible journey, just that progression, as you're saying, particularly in a sport where most people are starting that young. And your progression was very quick at that point. As I mentioned, at the, at the top junior world champion, then you're the youngest American national champion. I think it's 94 at that point. Like so many accolades that you had along the way. Was that a surprising aspect to you? Or I know you're very competitive, Johnny, or was it just a case of I've got to double my workload because I'm a late starter. I'm going to get to those points where maybe I would have been had I started early. Well, no one ever let me forget that I was behind. And then, of course, like in any sport, there were the moms that talked to my mom and didn't believe our story. They thought I'd been skating in, in some other village in Montana preparing for all of this, and it was just for the story. But You're a plant. We, yeah, I'm, just, I'm a plant, I'm a spy, whatever the case may have been. And, um, you know, it, it's still something that when we look back, it's it's so shocking that we got out of that period of my career alive there were so many opinions and there was so much hate and jealousy and all of that stuff that came into it because i was progressing so much faster than these kids who had been at it for a decade already and they were my age um it was just something that that came naturally to me and with that um again i i just got off my final tour in japan and i'm officially retired from performing and I've had a lot of time to look back and be nostalgic and remember the good and the bad memories as I'm opening a skating academy myself and I want to be a good coach. I have to remember all the good stuff that made me who I am, but at the same time, remember all of the stuff that was difficult or tough. And at the beginning, I definitely felt that I was playing catch up. All I wanted to do was jump. And it's funny that my career evolved in a way where a lot of people remember the artistry of my skating or the costumes or the performance. And, um, and all I wanted to do was jump, but there was this whole world that I had to learn that wrapped up around it. And then the politics and pleasing judges and really uh, diving into this world was a hard thing to do. It was, it was a, a barrel of snakes really. Uh, but we, we managed to, to maintain our dignity and our grace. When I say our, it's my mom and my coach at the time and my father and my brother. And, um, somehow just with a natural talent i was able to jump over a lot of those preconceived things that every figure skater has to do or is and i was able just to kind of forge my own path which i think looking back on it was a huge a huge benefit to my development in a sport that is so cutthroat and you think of the united states and how many people here skate and only three at a maximum get to go to the olympics every four years and i went twice i mean it's just against all odds. And the only way that I was able to do that was having my family and a strong team around me supporting me because I think had I let all of those other voices in, I never would have survived the early years. You mentioned TV movie before, Johnny. I'm still waiting for the Johnny Weir story to come to cinemas. You know, I, I Tonya, <laughs> screw that. I, Johnny, I, that's, that's what, that's what <laughs> I, I, I want to see. I, I love always whenever we get athletes on the show who sort of have been involved in different sports that – I can't really correlate them to. So I'm just trying to ask or work out, can you correlate anything from your equestrian days into when you transitioned into figure skating? I mean, horses jump, you jump on the ice. That's maybe the only thing I can think of. But I mean, in, in a serious note, training, anything that kind of helped you in a weird way when you took that transition and fully focused on figure skating and scrapped equestrian? Well, that's the thing. If, if there are parents that that watch or listen to this, um Everything that your kids do athletically or with sports or just weird little things you see them doing 
ultimately it's it's training or it's cross training so equestrian gave me at a very young age uh, a strong awareness of my body and um, where I have to be strong to stay sitting straight up in a saddle. And those muscles are very similar to keeping your body strong, preparing for a triple axle. Um, it's a human body. It's a lot of muscles. Some muscles are more beneficial to swimming, where some are more beneficial to skating. That's why when you watch the Olympics, you just see copies of people coming out to jump into the pool or race the track because there's a certain body type that works for so many sports and an awareness of that body is is so important. And I think equestrian gave me that basic understanding and basic knowledge of, of body awareness. And that's obviously very important when you're on a slippery surface or you're hurling yourself into the air, you have to know where all of your parts are. <laughs> and <laughs> definitely like that's what I've correlated equestrian to figure skating with. And I spent a lot of time just jumping with my friends on a trampoline. I mean, something as, as basic as that helps me understand my body. So in a way I was preparing myself to take <laughs> through all of the things I did with my friends. Yeah. I, I have four-year-old twins and one of them literally will spend half of his day jumping on a trampoline. And I've always thought, okay, he's got hopes for trampoline in the future. like, you could do two sports. Now you've you opened this up to me. It's like, you could be a summer and a winter Olympian. I mean, there's so exactly. many options for him now. It's fantastic. <laughs> Truly. And it's, um, I like thinking outside the box. If, if your listeners know me, I mean, they'll know that, but if, if everyone's new to me, I, I like doing things my own way. And, and that's, uh, that includes looking back and learning lessons from my past. And I know that all of the little weird kid things I did, whether it was making my friends do foot races with me, that's cardio cross training, <laughs> horseback riding, that's body awareness training. Um, I did try, so gymnastics was a sport that I loved when I was very young. And at six, my um, artistic gymnastics, at six, my mom took me to a gym in the city that was near us. Probably had mm, maybe 10,000 inhabitants. Wow. And it was a drama to get there. Um, but we went, it's at Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And uh, we went into this gym and the coaches were a Russian dude and a Chinese dude, and obviously leaders in gymnastics. Um, they took one look at me and told my mom that we'd be wasting our money and you, you shouldn't do this because you already don't have the right body type. Wow. Um, so, you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So I got turned away from gymnastics school, um, got into a figure skating school and the world became my oyster. The, the rest is history. I'm 36 years old, Johnny. Uh, try, try again is my motto. As I said before, uh, never give up on hope. I'm going to be an Olympian one day, be it, uh, you know, <laughs> 60. I'll get there. So uh, I, I like I like hearing that motto. One, I don't know if you've ever been asked about this competition, Johnny, but one, on the, on the journey to the Olympics, 2001, the Goodwill Games, okay. which happened right here in Australia, uh, a little forgotten, a little forgotten about event that I don't know if many people talk about. I mean, in all seriousness, one of your, if not your first taste of a multi-sport international event. As such a young skater who is still progressing through the ranks, what was that experience like to come to the other side of the world, be around athletes from other sports? And kind of taste that. And did that help you prepare for the Olympics five years later? Hmm. Okay. So the Goodwill Games were a, a huge turning point for me and my career because I had just won the junior world title 
And I was a last minute replacement, an alternate for the Goodwill Games. And for anyone that's listening that doesn't know, the Goodwill Games were kind of a, a mock Olympics made for TV. Um, Ted Turner. In the, by Ted Turner. Yeah. And it went all over the place. And my iteration was the the final amateur Goodwill Games, which is very awesome. But with that said, at that time, I'd been skating for five years and I was competing for the first time at the, the championship or Olympic level, senior level is what we call it here, but the Olympic level against these guys that I watched on television and walking past Yevgeny Plushenka in a hallway and watching all the other athletes from other sports, big and strong stars, you know, in, in their worlds. And I just, I was, I was so nervous <laughs> because uh, not only was I at the, the peak level of my sport, it was invitation only. Uh, and I was invited, I was honored to be invited to fly all the way to Australia to compete for the United States in this massive event. And uh, one thing that I, I struggled to learn even until the end of my career was the mental game of competing in sports at such a high level because everything happened so quickly. I didn't have a childhood of, uh, you know, competing several times and failing or those cute videos of skaters and really bad costumes, just like falling on their butt and getting up and waddling on their program. I never had that. I went straight from the cornfield to the moon. And there's a lot of skill you have to learn in figure skating. There are a lot of different um, aspects to my sport, whether it's the technical side or the artistic side and learning how to be free on the ice. There was all of that on my plate. And then you have to add performing in front of huge audiences, huge television audiences, millions of people, because people still watch television back in those days, millions of people on television watching me back in, in the United States. And, um, the psychological game was the difficult one for me my entire career. Um, but at the same time, I think if a person isn't nervous about something that they're doing, then they shouldn't be doing it because then they don't care. So I like being nervous and I've learned to accept it. But at that time in my career, it was just all consuming. And I barely saw anything except the ground in front of my feet because I was one of those awkward teenagers that liked to look down when they walked around and was just always scared of everything. Um, I, my mom and I talk about it all the time, traveling back in those days. I don't know how we did it. Now I have my iPad and I've got my stories that I listen to. I'm in the shower and I'm, I'm listening to Ships Creek and Moira Rose, a family member at this point, And she helps me get ready in the morning, whatever. But back then, you know, Hey mom, did you pack like an extra eight pack of double A batteries? I mean, <laughs> all those in Australia. Yeah. Um, so it, it's all of those fears of, of traveling the world and, um, and doing something that you love, but being under a microscope, it's a lot to put on a young person. So I have very fond memories of the Goodwill Games in Brisbane, but also I remember being absolutely terrified the whole time. I remember them being- there, there are bull sharks in the river there. Yeah. And sharks are the biggest fear. So I'm very, <laughs> I was very aware that they were there. I, I, don't, I don't know how often you'd want to go swimming in the Brisbane River, but I mean, you know, you're in Australia, you see water, I can understand the, the, the temptation. But I, I remember how big of a deal they were. And this is something that, seriously, I think a lot of people forgot we had because this was- Less than a year after the Sydney Olympics, we were all still very crazy for these multi-sport events. And 
got to say to this day, one of the biggest figure skating events we would have ever had in this country because obviously Australia is not really a figure skating nation. So for us to kind of have that, and as you mentioned, you know, the stars that we had at that event, looking back on that, you know, 20, 22 years ago, have you made it back to Australia since, Johnny, or is that still your only trip down under? 22 years ago, my God. Um, I've been back uh, a couple of times since then. Uh, I did a press tour my life has been so strange, but I did a press tour at one point um, after the Vancouver Olympics because we were promoting my reality series, Be Good Johnny Weir, which was all about my journey to my second Olympics. And then um, at the Vancouver Games, one of your broadcasters who's oh, yeah. about Lee McGuire, he got into a bit of trouble when he was talking about me. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very, very, very difficult person to offend. I've heard it all. I've seen it all. And I give it about this much time in my life. It, it, what people say is very unimportant to me. I'd rather uh, show the world who I am, not what I am. I mean, I'm just that person. Um, I live, again, I'm out in the middle of nowhere in a village because this is where I like to be. So gossip has means nothing to me. But um, Eddie had invited me to perform at the Docklands in Melbourne. And I was super honored. And <clears throat> I knew that he was he was uh, in hot water about me. And I hate anyone that misspeaks or makes a mistake, not giving them an opportunity to fix it. And I would hope that people would give me that opportunity as well. So um, I went, we had a wonderful time, the shows were wonderful. And one thing about performing in Australia or really doing anything in Australia as, as a, a foreigner is I love the energy that Australians have for welcoming people to their country. I think that Australia is just so far away from everywhere. And it's such an honor as as a non-Australian to be invited to do anything in Australia. But the welcome there is just out of this world. People know how long that plane trip is. And they're just so appreciative that you're there, that whether it's the Goodwill Games or performing in the shows at the Docklands, whatever the case may have been, it just it always feels good to go. And I hope that I'll visit Australia many more times in my life just because it is so special. I don't know if it's in the background or not. I have eucalyptus out back there on that oh, table. Look at that. Um, <laughs> I just like in it. Honor of the specialness. But um, yeah, Australia is a special place to me. And when I went for the Goodwill Games, the audience was so kind. It's like they knew that I needed an extra a boost from them because I was 16. I was really out of my depths. And uh I have a special place in my heart for Australia, certainly. And now, as the American host of Eurovision, I I just revel in Australia's place in my life. (laughs) You're really fitting well in this. I'm going to, we'll test you with uh, Canada soon with Colin. And also, of course, you know, keep doing the great work on NBC and you'll be here, of course, in about nine years for the Olympics. But I'm glad you mentioned that about Eddie because that was a big deal here. That was was national news in this country, sort of everything around that. But I, I did watch the interview clip you did after your performance with Gian Rooney and you kept mentioning like, hi, Eddie. Hi, I'll be down there soon. I'll be there. And then sort of even Eddie sort of came back and after the break and was basically like, oh, good on you, Johnny. You can come stay with me. So did you actually get to stay with Eddie Maguire when you went to Melbourne? Or no, I'll I, ask didn't, that. I didn't stay with him. <laughs> I'm, um, uh, let's, let's put it that I'm a difficult house guest. <laughs> not, because, not because I impose my isms on other people. It's just I make people uncomfortable. Uh, because I am so specific about the way that I do things and run my life. It's just easier to throw me in a hotel. So I was in a hotel. And um, again, it's it's so easy, especially now, to make a mistake. 
And I think it's important to always own the mistakes that we make. And as a broadcaster, you know, now I'm, I'm under a microscope and you say one wrong word and, and you can be canceled or fired or offend somebody or make someone cry. And, and I think that everyone deserves a moment to, to correct their, their mistake. And Eddie was doing that. And it was, it was not long before the blow up of social media, but you know, I knew he was, he was struggling. And um, he turned out to be a, a great guy with me. We enjoyed our time together. And um, I knew how big a story it was down there. And um, if, if there's ever a way I can help another person, I try to, unless they really don't deserve it. Um, but uh, Eddie, Eddie's a, a nice guy and he just made a little mistake. One of the things that I find so interesting about figure skating, even in comparison to something like gymnastics, there's so much more individuality. I mean, it almost seems like half of what a performance is is about how do you stand out from everything from outfits, the music choice and the style of skating and everything. I mean, you're kind of well known for for being very involved with, uh, you know, your own outfits and everything. I don't know if it's the same involvement with music choices or if this is even normal in the sport. But I mean, is this something from the beginning that you were able to kind of take charge on that or whether there was any hesitation with you maybe being able to make these choices from the beginning? Uh, well, it's it's a mixed bag and it's a long story. So tuck in. Um, so <laughs> You're gonna fit so well on this show, Johnny. Good to hear. <laughs> I'm trying to fill our hour. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so uh, uh, on the surface of things, for every skater, it's different. There are certain skaters that really just like to focus on on the technical aspects of what they're trying to achieve, and their coach or the choreographer picks the music, throws them in a costume, and says, "Go jump." Um, there are other skaters that are really all about the process and like to almost go into like a method actor, go into character for the year. Um, and you'll see it a lot, especially in ice dance where, you know, they grow the mustache for the year or whatever, whatever it is. And um, for me, my comfortable place was having full ownership of my choices because that was something that i could rely on again it goes back to me just starting really late in a sport that i really didn't know anything about and when you're out there on the ice you're completely alone no matter how much coaching you have they're not standing there and, and helping you through a performance it's all on you so i wanted to be sure that every aspect of what i was giving to the world was authentic and and was me and that was only really invigorated in me. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, early in my career, after four years on the ice, I became the junior world champion, which then puts you on a lot of people's radars. Um, the, a first agent came to me and my mom in a, a hotel that we were staying at for a competition and kind of offered us the world. And we can give you everything that you've ever dreamt of, um, tours and endorsements and money and all this blah, blah, blah. But you can't be gay. And this is when I'm 16 and still like not even comfortable talking about that with my mom. And we never broached the subject because again, I'm one of those people that's not a, a flag waver for the most part. I, I want you to focus on the things I put out into the world and, and who I am, not what I am. So I've never really seen my sexuality as being that important. And I know I've gone a, on a really windy road here. But again, just perfect for this show, Johnny. This is what happens all <laughs> yeah. the time. It's great. Um, so, so that happened. And at the same time, um, I was starting to be viewed as America's next great hope and the next skater that could win the Olympic gold medal for the United States. And I definitely felt that pressure 
but it went to another level when officials would come and, and we call them monitoring sessions where they watch you run through your program to make sure that you're fit and that you're prepared for competition and that essentially they're not wasting a trip on you, that you're ready to compete and everyone's happy with your costuming, your performance and, and your condition. So <clears throat> it was my first uh, full year on, no, I'm sorry, the second full year on the Grand Prix series, which happens every autumn. And it was uh, an Olympic season. So it was 2000, uh, 2001, 2002 season. No, anyway, dates. <laughs> I'm elderly. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, they basically told me that my wrists were too limp, that my hair was the wrong color because I had, had highlights in it, that my costumes were too showy. And by showy, it was kind of the, the code word for too gay. Wow. And at that time in American figure skating, they were definitely pushing uh, a more all-American, um, masculine dude to, to be the face of U.S. men's figure skating. Um, and I wasn't that I, I watched the Eastern European and, and Russian skaters growing up and I was inspired by the more balletic and theatrical styles that they had more so than, than the American men. And so that's who I followed and, and those footsteps that I followed in. And at that time when they came there and, and told me how to be and what to wear and how to talk and, and what color my hair should be somehow I had the inner strength to be like, screw them. <laughs> you know, this is my life. It's my journey. Uh, this is what I can put out into the world. And there's nobody that controls that but me and my mom, because she was still paying for me to get my hair highlighted. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it, it was from an early point in my career where I wanted full ownership of everything that I was doing because it gave me power. It gave me strength. It, it helped me stand up and, and fight through a lot of tough times because I could fall back on this music means so much to me. And you just have to go out there and listen to your music and skate to your music. And you're in the most beautiful costume. And yeah, you're already starting at a bit of a disadvantage. I mean, they want this strong, masculine American man and you're not that. So you have to be three times better than that strong, masculine American man. So that's the pressure I put on myself to, to be that. So there'd be no question that I was the best one. And nobody could take that away from me. And have we seen now that two decades have passed that it's advanced? Uh, uh, are people now more open to, say, people with your style? Or if not, is that something you're trying to instill in your academy at the moment? Definitely. I mean, first of all, my academy is open to everyone. I mean, I want people that want to go to the Olympics and compete internationally but I want people to have a home and to have a safe place to train for the Olympics and and have it be supportive and kind and, and velvety and soft. And there are a lot of harsh edges in Olympic sport. And I tell every prospective student and their parents, if you're looking for a warm, fuzzy environment, Olympic sports isn't necessarily the easiest place to find that. But I'm going to try in every way that I possibly can to protect my kids and to make them feel as strong and empowered as they possibly can. But in my sport, there's definitely been so much progress. And I think an outsider's view of figure skating is, is that it's basically filled with, with beautiful women in pretty dresses and gay dudes. And that is still the predominant idea when people think of or imagine figure skating. 
And when you are a figure skater, in, in the United States anyway, especially, but um, <clears throat> when you're when you're a skater, you have to think about your judging panel because they ultimately decide if you're going to have a future or not. And you think, well, they're about a half a century older than me. Maybe I can tone this down a little bit to please them. Uh, maybe I can go a little bit softer with the music so I can go harder with the costume. But now I think that, you know, there were, of course, gay skaters who came before me and very theatrical and balletic men that came before me that helped pave the way for me to have a platform to stand on. And I like to think I had a small part in the skaters that have come after me that felt more comfortable to be themselves in international figure skating, to stand on the ice at the Olympics and be able to be completely themselves. And I'm inspired by this new crop of athletes that are living their truths in front of the world. Um, all colors of our rainbow are represented in international sport and Olympic sport. And I think that's just, it's a wonderful thing. And it's definitely a reflection of the world around us being more accepting of people that are different. And um, I, I think that it's it's necessary that mm. sports is open to everyone. Love that. Absolutely. Absolutely agree with that. Just touching on your two Olympic appearances. I feel so like blase with that. Just touching on your two Olympic yeah. appearances. We'll just, <laughs> we'll, we'll, just a quick question on those two things called the Olympic Games. You might have heard of them. Um, six in 2010, fifth in 2006. When it just came to the overall experience, we always love hearing that vibe, everything. You, you touched on sort of that you know, 16-year-old Johnny in Brisbane at a Goodwill Games. But do you remember 2006, <laughs> your first Olympics, sort of being exposed to everything along those lines, village life and, and just the glare of the world that comes from an Olympic Games, particularly on the sport of figure skating? Oh, I just, I think I just started sweating in the small of my back and I got <laughs> Got to achieve that tick. All right, that's what we wanted today. <laughs> so, okay. So the dream was always the Olympic games and then it happens. And you, especially in niche sports, like most Olympic sports, you get used to that comfortable little world and you get comfortable to seeing the same fans and the same judges and the same athletes and the same television crews. And, and you just get used to it. And then you make the Olympics and you're on the front page of every newspaper in your country. You have signs in your hometown that say, go Johnny. And that in itself is a lot of pressure to put on someone who's not used to that kind of attention. And I'm, I'm not shy in front of a camera, but I'm, I'm, uh, you know, against what most people would think of me is that I am a, a shy person. I'm inherently very, um, I, I'm a homebody. I like quiet. Um, I like subtlety and and just the beauty of quietness. So you go to the Olympic Games and it's nothing but loud. And as we mentioned already, I'm pretty particular in the way that I travel and the the sort of creature comforts that I require to really put my head on straight and get my job done. And village life, it, it was intense. I remember rolling up to the village in Torino and... I didn't have a quilt on my bed. It was just like a single sheet. I'm like, well, it's February and <laughs> it's cold. And these were quickly built sort of apartment complexes. And nothing about this is comfortable. Uh, the security as it should be is very heightened. So I can't see my mom. And that my mom is a huge part of my career. And, and while I was young enough, we always roomed together. And she was my 
my back and forth, my my caretaker, my my muscle, my brick wall. And at the Olympics, she couldn't be anywhere near me. So that in itself was difficult. I had to steal blankets and a lamp and a <laughs> toilet seat. Wow. To a toilet seat. Um, a toilet seat for my unit. So uh, I, I requested that I would not have a roommate, which is very rare um, <laughs> at the Olympic Games. So it was my first one. I was the national champion coming in. So I thought, Johnny, if you're ever going to use any bit of swag or have a diva <laughs> moment. So I just said, I know it's probably really difficult, but I don't want a roommate. It'll just completely throw me off. And I just, I can't have anyone in this space. <laughs> so I was in uh, a house. It was a three bedroom sort of condo townhouse thing. And I was with the coaches for curling and cross-country skiing, I do believe they were. As you often and probably were in your career, Johnny, I can imagine. Yep. You know what? Paths every other week. <laughs> it's the posse. It's the crew. But first of all, I loved that it was coaches and not athletes because <laughs> the, the, the energies of the other athletes would have completely thrown me off. But the coaches were, I could deal with them and we were on completely opposite schedules. So I never saw them. And I had a private bedroom and a private bathroom. Hence, I had to steal a toilet seat. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it was it was everything that athletes always post about on social media. I mean, it was quickly built. It's not a hotel. They're apartments. They're going to be apartments after the fact. And there's there's nothing going on there. So the, the initial shock of arriving at the Olympics was something. You go through processing. You get all the clothes. Um, it's it's uh, immensely overwhelming. It's just so big. And then you show up for your first press conference. It's a packed house of the world's press. Then you go to your first practice. Every light, every camera is trained on you. And you're so used to like the one TV camera that's tracking you on practices so they know your performance and your program for when they go live on television and the few photographers that you see everywhere. And now it's the BBC. It's Channel One Russia. It's NHK Japan. It's NBC. It's all these big, big, big things. And then you go out and and training is not normal. So you're there for a week and a half before you actually start competing, whereas usually you'll show up a day or two before the competition starts. And you're there a week and a half training under the watchful eye of the entire world. And you go to the opening ceremony. And I remember it was Pavarotti singing and there was mm. a Lamborghini flying around yeah. the track and I really had to piddle and it was an open, open yeah, the toilet route. seat though Johnny that was just in your back pocket <laughs> at least there's comfort <laughs> exactly I had a toilet seat um but you know I'm, I'm sitting in the midst of all of these athletes the best athletes from around the world uh you know Bodie Miller was a, a hero of mine because my mm. family mm. were Norwegian by blood so inherently we watch skiing and uh, Bodie Miller was a big star to me. So I was just like, he's right there. He's sitting right there. Oh my God. And, um, you know, all the hockey people. I'm just like, wow, they're all here. But I'm sitting there having to piddle. It was a full moon. Like how perfect for your first Olympic opening ceremony. Full moon. Pavarotti singing Nessendorma. I mean, it was just epic and huge. And 
bigger than anything you can imagine. And again, I take you back to the kid that started skating in a village with one traffic light. And all of a sudden you're there with Pavarotti, a full moon and the Olympic opening ceremonies. So that energy, it it was beautiful. It was glorious. And then when it came time to compete again, I've been under the watchful eye of the world for a week and a half before I actually take today for my first competition. And we're in Italy. It's before we had cell phones that worked internationally. And I didn't have any concept of how big I'd gotten while I was there. And the people were following me. People were cheering for me. People were watching. My short program went well. I was in position for, for a medal. And then in that day, in between the short program and the free skate, my brain just vacated Italy. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't walk in a straight line, let alone figure skate well. And it was, it was an out of body experience. And I just, for the first time in my career, in my short career, nine years (laughs) of being on the ice and then I'm in this Olympic medal contention position, I was, I was done before I even tried to compete in the free skate. And Um, I missed a bus getting to the rink because they changed the schedule on me. And I was just shaking constantly. Uh, After the the event happened, one of the producers with NBC somehow had had ratings from all over the world. And there were over a billion people looking at me when I had, at that point, the worst moment in my life, when I failed to win. And had a... to watch it, it wasn't as rough as I remember it. I still can't watch it. Um, well, there goes that I, segment idea. Never mind. Yeah. We won't. Uh, <laughs> the rewatch is not happening today. Thanks for letting us know. Appreciate no, that. I don't need to rewatch that. But it was, it, it was totally out of body. On the warm up, there were six of the world's best men from six different countries. So you had the Russians screaming "Davai." non-stop you had the swiss cowbells you had the allié from the french fans uh the the japanese fans the americans screaming for me flags waving and at the olympics we share a venue with speed skating so there's all this padding on the board so really you're six feet from your coach and it was so definitely loud i couldn't hear her any words of encouragement, any words like take a breath, calm down. You do this every day. It's okay. I just, I couldn't hear her. And then um, I took, I went off the ice after the warm up, and just that, that dazed and confused feeling. Like when you step out of a dark room into the sunlight for the first time, and it's just like your eyes have stars in them. And then I went and tried to, to skate an Olympic medal winning free skate and I failed. And as crushing as that was, um, I, I remember I got picked for doping after I had this crushing performance. And, you know, as soon as I got off the ice, I was no longer America's sweetheart. I went through the press line and all of the American press seemingly had turned on me and wanted to know why I'd failed and why I effed up so bad. And, um, uh, are you gay? Did that have a part in it? Um, you know, it just, it turned very quickly and, with that said, I, I got selected for doping and I'm a shy piddler. Um, so it took me hours after a horrible performance, not horrible, but a, a losing performance, um, sitting in this cold little room, watching all the medalists walk through and, and pee like that. 
I had to take the test like three times because I'd only fill a certain amount. And a lot of people don't know this, but you have to fill a certain amount in in the cup for them to be able to test it. And, and you hadn't been holding it since earlier when you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just so dehydrated and so crestfallen and just empty. I was a zombie. I was a shell of myself. But um, my favorite memory of that Olympics was certainly the short program. I mean, I skated very well, the opening ceremony. But um, after I had this horrific moment in front of over a billion people around the world, I walked out after taking hours to dope. And my mother had been waiting outside. She couldn't get close to me, but there were these bars at the back loading dock of, of the Palabela in, in Torino. And she had clearly been crying and she put her arms through the bars and hugged me. And that that is my favorite memory from that Olympics. It's because mm -hmm. no matter what billion people saw me just have the worst night of my life, my mom was there. Love and then, that. love <laughs> that, Johnny. Sorry, I just I needed to mention. I love that. I love that part. Of the ending of that story. But then, <laughs> we had another. And I, I'm so happy that somehow, uh, by hook or by crook, I kept it together, and I was able to compete in another Olympics. And the way figure skating works, I mean, we talk about politics a lot, but at that point, I had to refresh my career if I was going to make it another Olympics. So. My, my coach at the first Olympics had been my coach since I took the ice. And she was very much like a mom. But in figure skating, once you reach a certain level and once you have all of the technical skills that you need, you need a coach to act almost as a manager, to manage your days, to make sure you run through the programs, to, to fix technical deficiencies, but not completely revamp the way that you skate. You need a new vision. You need um, a new push. So I found that in Galina Zmievskaya, who coached Oksana Bayul to her Olympic gold medal. <laughs> and I, I moved away from home for the first time. And I'd had these huge moments in front of the world already. So I was experienced. And um, when I came back from Torino, in addition to, again, people still wrote letters then, um, I, had, I had stalkers, I had death threats, I had horrible letters smeared in dog poo sent to my grandmother's house, you know, all of the the weird effed upness of the world that people usually only get through social media now, we were getting in our mailboxes because we weren't we were listed and we didn't know any better at the time. So there was there was a lot of bad stuff that happened, but also I, I became a household name in a lot of respects, and I was able to enjoy a little bit of that that five minutes of fame, that celebrity that happens after after an Olympics for many of the athletes. And that was fun and it was cool, but it wasn't uh, as fulfilling as the idea of competing at another Olympics and correcting the, the wrongs and the mistakes that I'd made in my first one. So I threw everything at it. I gave everything that I had to, to competing at the Olympics again. And at that time I had a crew that had uh, fall in love with with my candor and my personality and my skating leading up to Torino and they followed the Torino Olympics and they realized there I mean this is their words not mine but they realized that I was the documentary about figure skating so uh, a, a young production company uh, Retribution Media James Barba and David Pellerito they became family and followed the process of leaving my mother essentially my my coach of all those years and and staking a new claim on my career and moving away from home, away from my mom, away from um, that comfort zone, and really treating figure skating as as my business instead of just a dream. Because I 
the business was going to another Olympics. And uh, training with Galena, we we spoke in Russian every day. It seemed that every doctor, dentist, uh, shopkeeper, hairdresser that I worked with at that time was a suggestion from Galena and they were all Russian speaking. So I actually spoke English with a weird accent <laughs> at that point. <laughs> and I had a case of the Madonnas and I just, you know, I <laughs> think for a while before I found my words. It was a weird time to say the least. She, she helped me play the mental game. She reinvigorated me as a person and as a skater. And it was tremendous for me to go work with her. And it was, it was bumpy at the start. And I didn't tell her that I spoke Russian right away because I wanted to listen to hear what she was talking about with, with Viktor Petrenko, who was part of her coaching team, one of her Olympic champions and Nina Petrenko, her daughter, who helped me with choreography and artistry and, and getting through programs and stuff when Galina and Victor were away. So I listened in and they were very complimentary. They were very sweet. So I finally felt one day when she was screaming at me from across the ring, trying to in English and she just kept turning more and more and more red because, you know, she is an older Soviet woman screaming in Russian is a whole lot easier than screaming screaming in English. So I skated over to her and I said, I speak Russian. You can, you can teach me in Russian. And she's had some very choice words for me in Russian. And she was like, this whole time you've been torturing me. So then she, she gave me a rough day, but, but ultimately I refound my voice on the ice and I had this new passion, this new, uh, uh, this reinvigoration to get me to another Olympics. And we, we charted that path and we somehow as a team got back to another Olympics in a sport that really doesn't, uh, <laughs> doesn't always favor the elderly. And at that point I was, I was, 25 trying to qualify so for my old Olympics. just disgustingly old 25 Johnny. <laughs> yeah. come on i know i don't make the rules but uh, you know younger bodies spin faster and they enjoy the process more than an older <laughs> rickety 25 year old body <laughs> but um so somehow we got back to a position of of great acclaim in in the united states and internationally and i was respected again despite failing at that Olympics and then having a couple rough world championships and Grand Prix series where I was a mess and, and Galena helped me. And at that point, my, my documentary series was, was airing and it was right before the Olympics and there was a lot of attention around me. And, and, you know, there is a business side to competing at the Olympics as well, where, you know, the first Olympics, I wasn't expecting the five minutes of fame after, but I knew I would have to work this Olympics for my advantage and, and to do, to do more and to entertain people farther than just the Olympics and, and to hopefully work in television one day. So it wasn't my main strategy. My main strategy was competing and competing well and how giving the performances that I should have given in Torino where I was really a metal threat. By the time Vancouver came around, I was in better esteem, but at the same time I was competing for the United States speaking English with a weird accent and only speaking Russian with my coaches. And I was very isolated from my team and all of our officials. So politically they'd moved on from me. So again, I was in a position just like at the beginning of my career where I would have to be three times better than anybody else just to earn my spot on that Olympics, no matter how popular I was at the time. And um, I had a, a half and a half good qualifying event for the Olympics and 
Um, after the event was over, I was the third place qualifier from the United States. After the event, I was behind a curtain taking my skates off. And Galena and I always hid in curtain off areas because she couldn't go into the, the locker room because there were dudes in there. And uh, we just liked to be together before my performances. And I had a rough free skate, but still for sure deserved to be on the Olympic team. And uh, an official from US figure skating uh, came up to Galena after the, the results and after I'd been named to the team and everything. And uh, he didn't realize I was behind the curtain and said, you know, the only reason Johnny really is on this team is because he's so popular and has a reality show right now. And wow. I know that sounds oh, is me, but the point of all of these, like, oh, I'm so, it was so tragic, <laughs> was that it, it, it created my strength and it made me the athlete that I am to have to prove people wrong. And not everyone has that journey, but I did. Yeah. And I hope that story would empower somebody to just march to the beat of their own drum and do what they choose to and just be the best version of themselves they can be. Because at the end of the day, you have to look in the mirror and be happy with the person looking back at you. Yeah. Anyway, all the Olympics we go. <laughs> and it's a completely different experience. I went to the opening ceremony. I watched that thing not lift all the way. Yeah, don't, um, don't bring that up to Colin. That's still a national <laughs> shame in his country. <laughs> I know it's a soft spot. I'm sorry, but you know. Wayne Gretzky I, I, was shot after that, by the way. No one ever talks about that, but Wayne Gretzky's got a bullet in him because of that no, moment. Don't even joke. Um, but yeah, I, I went and I enjoyed it. It was the Green Olympics. Vancouver was wonderful. Um, you know, I do believe my 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 dad and my brother you know, got into the little doobie action up there. Um, it's Canada. So, it's the national yeah, sport. They had fun. Um, Especially and, the snowboarders. <laughs> no, they don't. They're Olympians. They they have to get drunk. <laughs> don't bring up '98. Don't bring up '98. It was it was passive bring smoke. Nothing that I know nothing about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my brother and my father enjoyed Vancouver, um, but I was in a completely different mind mind frame for my second Olympics. I knew I wasn't really a threat, so the pressure was off. And um, I know it sounds awkward to say that because you know, you always have to believe that you're a threat, but also in the back of your mind, you have to be a realist and know that you can't set yourself up to win an Olympic gold medal when politically, when there are other people deciding your fate, that it's just probably not in the cards for you. And you were robbed in Vancouver anyway, Johnny. We all know that 13 years I, later. I agree. I agree. I, I feel like I earned a medal that night. Mm. And, um, uh, and I skated the performances of my life. And I don't know if it was because the pressure was off theoretically, and I didn't have the hopes of America riding on my shoulders because there was another American to shoulder those hopes. I don't know if it was with age comes wisdom. I don't know if it was the hard work I'd put in. I don't know if it was the relationship I had with my coach and that she in, very much sheltered me. I mean, she took my butt to church every morning <laughs> in Vancouver, she found uh, a, a little Orthodox church and we went, we had the priests throw water at me. We, uh, we prayed, we lit candles, we did everything we could. We went to lunch at the Four Seasons. We didn't eat in the athletes village. She just really kept me away from that Olympic experience that could distract me. And I, I hate saying it because the Olympic experience is one that is incredible and it should not be missed. And you should you should feel like an Olympian and all of those events and all of the grandeur that you see on TV is real. It's emotion. It's all of that, that stuff that you look forward to and dream about as a kid. But it was my second Olympics. I'd experienced it once before and she knew that. 
And she made it possible for me to have those best performances of my life where I end my free skate in Vancouver, knowing that I probably wouldn't win a medal, but more importantly, that I proved myself wrong. I proved that I could do this to myself and, and the world stood up literally it's it's not me being arrogant it's just i felt the arena stand up before i even finished it was deafening um competing in north american olympics was very different than a european olympics for an american athlete and um, our neighbors to the north definitely uh, treated american athletes like we were theirs and I, it was it was the moment of my life and it was everything that that I dreamt of it being, even without a gold medal, it was my gold medal moment. And I, I have closure on it. I, I realized I didn't win an Olympic medal, but it it was everything that it was supposed to be. I love so, love. That's what yeah, we want to hear on this show, no Johnny. Regrets. That's yeah. I have no regrets. That's that's the perfect thing. And which I love just all the inspirational because I mean, obviously we're an Olympic show, and you know, all jokes aside, Colin and I never have probably never will be olympians and we live through our guests to kind of understand that but that's that's the sort of the journey i love hearing because yeah metal is fantastic of course it is but if you can leave with your head held high knowing also that you were robbed um you know that's where you can reflect on that and and kind of have that that journey which is still fantastic johnny that you're still so positive and you can still so uh, reflect on that with such a smile on your face all these years later well i mean you learn a lot through sports and and now with my life in front of a camera for the most part i mean you learn a lot about yourself you really have to look at yourself and the things that you value in life and for me having a warm fuzzy happy life is a lot nicer than a cold and and depressed one i i want to to look in the mirror and i to be proud of the day that i just had and the person that i see hopefully smiling back at me and not every day feels like that and there are certain days as a hypercritical perfectionist athlete where I look back and see the things that I could have done better. But you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. If you're going to dwell on little things that could have made your experience that much better or could have gotten you that gold medal, um, you'll waste your life. And for me, I choose to be positive and to stand in the light versus being in all of those dark places. And the reason I share dark things or hard things is to... Uh, let other people know that it's 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 not just you. It's you're not alone in struggling. You're not alone in uh, having trouble finding inspiration or finding your power. Um, we all go through it, and it's something that's very personal and it's very private. And it's something that you ultimately have to find in yourself that strength and that power to overcome all of life's little inconveniences or hates or mistakes or regrets. Um, you get to choose if you smile or not, and that's the light that I like to put out into the world for myself and for other people. Wow. Incredible. Love hearing that. Definitely, uh, definitely inspirational there. A couple of things I want to touch on before we get to our, our final set of questions here, Johnny, because again, like could be here, you, you pretty much answered about 50 questions in that, in that great talk there. So thank <laughs> yeah. you for doing our job. It really, it really is appreciated. <laughs> um, just on obviously post skating, the, the broadcasting career, I mean, it's, you've got this second win now. It's sort of, you know, this iconic American skater. Now this broadcaster, your relationship with Tara is just just beyond the realms of uh, everything. I, I mean, you mentioned in there that maybe this was something that you were looking at potentially to get into TV after you had finished. But was that something that 
legitimately was your focus or sort of 2014 rolls around, you're working for NBC, it goes so well with Tara that it kind of just all of a sudden uh, goes that direction instead? I didn't know what I wanted. I just knew that I wanted to entertain people. And in figure skating, obviously, we have an afterlife. We have a professional touring life. And right now, uh, skating is, is huge in Japan, in South Korea, in China. Um, and I've had the experiences of a lifetime traveling the world and performing for audiences literally everywhere. And um, so that was an afterlife that I knew would be possible for me. But I was not prepared for the popularity that I enjoyed after Vancouver. It was it was after Torino, but on steroids. I mean, I was the face of MAC Cosmetics globally, except for a couple of countries where you can't have nipples in an ad. <laughs> wow. and, Do you want to list I them mean, at all, Johnny? Are we allowed to, are we allowed to list them? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, there was there was an island somewhere, maybe it was my Maldives or Seychelles. Okay, and, and uh, the United Arab Emirates. Wow. I think they couldn't my full ad, but no, you nipples. know, mm. no nipples. But to be to be a sixth place finisher in figure skating and to be a global face of a cosmetics company and be a dude repping a cosmetics company. Yeah, I. Things like that happened to me. I was able to write a book and have another season of a television show. And every network wanted to, to, to have me do something for them. And I don't know if it's because I had the, the reality show that really could show people my personality or, or who I am or how much I love entertaining people. I like when I watch something, I like to take people away or uh, when I watch something, I like to be taken away from my life for that hour or that five minutes, whatever the case may be. And uh, that's what I like doing as an entertainer, whether it's on the ice or in front of the camera. I, I want to make people smile or laugh, laugh at me, laugh with me, cry, whatever, the, <laughs> whatever it is. But, um, you know, I had a, a body of work and I was able to prove myself. And a lot of that comes from sports, obviously. And, and I'm very rigorous with my preparation and working very hard as is Tara, but um, my ability to perform comes from from figure skating. We have to tell a whole story in four and a half minutes to a panel of judges from all over the world without using our, our words and our voices. So a lot of that comes from my sport and my training and figure skating and sport really has been my, my high school, my university, my college, my master's, all of those things. It, it's been skating that have prepared me for everything that I've done after. And as far as, as being a commentator, a broadcaster goes, I didn't know what happened for me. Immediately after Vancouver, NBC started talking to my team and I uh, about commentating, but I wasn't completely sure that I was done mm. competing. And obviously I can't be a current competitive skater and commentate events about my competitors. Groundbreaking, you could be. Mm. You could be out in the ice with a microphone. <laughs> oh, it's doing quite well. <laughs> like, I mean. <laughs> Idea for, but, idea for NBC, take it for uh, for Milan. You're welcome. Oh, God. I mean, we're exploring all kinds of microphone situations and miking skaters up and finding tiny mics that we could put on them <laughs> just to hear what that sounds like. Um, I, 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 it's, it's a whole new world. But um, they were talking to me, but I wasn't sure I was done. And then I did come back briefly in 2012, and I got so in shape. I was so fit. 
Uh, I was ready to take on the world again. And I had just this outpouring of support and love from, from all of these fans from all over the world. It was amazing. And I got to my first competition and it was against Yuzuru Hanyu, who went on to become double Olympic champion, mm-hmm. and Javier Fernandez from Spain, who is the Olympic bronze medalist. I forget how many European titles he has, seven or eight or something, two world titles. And it was kind of at the beginning of their ascension in figure skating. And I just watched what they were doing. And I was like, you know what? You might be a little old for this. You might be a little old for this to keep up with these kids now. Uh, so I, I bowed out gracefully and finally told NBC, you know what? I'm ready to do this. So I went into to the commentary booth for the first time, just commentating the men's competition. And Tara was handling the women. And we were very much the B team. So our A team was legends, Scott Hamilton, Sandra Bezet. Uh, and and we thought it would be a million years until we, we actually got to be the A team. So we were covering the Grand Prix series. We covered the European championships, you know, basically the stuff that wasn't on live television that that Scott and Sandra um, were doing. And then it came to the Sochi Olympics. And it was a, a tough Olympics to get through for me. I was uh, just at the very beginning of a very public divorce. I was doing my first Olympics as a broadcaster. I was uh, still kind of reeling over the fact that Sochi, I was sort of hoping would be my last Olympics, plus all of Russia's anti-gay legislation that was coming into, into play and having to answer to that for an entire community. Mm. And, and for me at that time, it was all about being an Olympian first and that goes beyond politics. And I, I would have wanted the opportunity to compete and be gay and be proud in front of a Russian audience, in front of Vladimir Putin. I would have wanted that experience. And at that time, I, I think I said that if the Olympics were held on Mars and I qualified, I would go. So um, there was just a lot of bigness happening all at once at that Olympics. And uh, for Tara and me, we were covering every single skater, every single warm-up uh, without breaks on the live um, cable feed, which generally at that time, still in the United States, people would tune in for the primetime shows, mm-hmm. but we were covering it live. And on the East coast, there was a blizzard. So people were stuck in their homes, watching the Olympics and watching with us. And Tara and I went through a lot of personal big things right away early in our partnership. And I mean, to be fair, figure skating doesn't really teach you to make a lot of friends or to really trust a lot of people. But for some reason, we immediately trusted one another. And then early in our relationship, we're going through huge things in our careers and our personal lives and having to be there for each other and to be a shoulder to cry on and um, a microphone to talk into and, and a mirror to look into to see ourselves. And we just went about our business, doing our thing, creating a joint Instagram, doing the best we could, and and really trying to to inform people about what they were watching um, on the ice. It wasn't a Vaseline-covered uh, lens. We were really real uh, with our audience, and we were able to say why somebody lost, and it isn't all about reputation. And, and um, we cheered for everyone as much as we possibly could, but if we had to tell our audience why something was so terrible we did it we weren't afraid to do it because we both went through that in our own lives 
And um, we had no idea how much we were blowing up back in the US. <laughs> My mom called me and I was, you know, if, if I wasn't on camera, I was off it crying or talking to my mom or dealing with my personal life. And she's just like, you're on the front page of like every newspaper and website and you're the lead story on like the Philly news and they're making fun of you on Saturday Night Live. And we, you know, we were just trying to do our jobs. <laughs> and um, we're so thankful that we had each other for that experience, along with Terry Gannon, who's our who's our our play by play and our muscle. And he takes care of so many things and teaches us the ropes in so many ways. Because I'll still go on a television interview that has multiple cameras, and they'll ask me a question, and I'll think I'm looking at the right camera, and <laughs> it's full on the side of my face. No one ever taught me how to be on television. Um, so I, you know, that's a great question. Yeah, actually, you know, um, I'm that guy. Um, it's really fun when I do scripted things and I have to hit marks because I never do, and I change the script because I'm used to live television. But it it gave us uh, a a new breath and it gave us a chance to educate our audiences about figure skating and not just make it fluffy mm. and pretty and um, we wanted people to really understand how hard it is to be a figure skater, how difficult our sport is and how hard it is even to get to a level where they'd be on television with commentators, with you watching at home. And the fact that we've enjoyed a career, I mean, 2023, this year is a decade that we've worked together as commentators Wow! and we're on our, our 10 year Sochi anniversary. And the fact that people still invite us into their living rooms to to watch the Olympics and to watch sports with us, and now we've branched out into other sports and other events, and and uh, the Oscars and the Super Bowl and the Summer Olympics and the closing ceremonies. I mean, it's just a dream come true, and there's no rhyme or reason or method to it. To get back to the initial question, that you know, I I wasn't calculated in saying I want to be a broadcaster one day. I want to commentate figure skating because I had no idea what that entailed either. I mean, television is just as political as figure skating. Yeah, but this has all happened magically and that's the only way I can put it. And I have the best partners in Terry and Tara and Andrea Joyce, who's our sideline reporter um, to, to go through this with. And NBC has been so cool and so supportive and they're basically just like, do you, I remember for Sochi, I mean, the clothes were a big thing and the hair is a big thing and I get it. Um, but I really am just trying to be myself and, if Tara and I are on the screen and we have that 15 second attention span from people scrolling to grab you, the clothes and the hair have to speak to you. Yeah. Um, but originally I asked before Sochi, I'm like, do we have, like, is there a stylist that helps us get ready for this? I'm like, no, we have a wardrobe department that'll help you steam stuff. And we have a relationship with Brooks brothers. And then I look at my closet and, you know, there's like, pink vintage Chanel hanging there. And I'm like, I just, I'm not a Brooks Brothers person. And um, Andrea Joyce, again, our play-by-play -play reporter, and she's a longtime luminary of American sports television. Um, she told us right before, so she's like, oh, you don't even have to pack that much. They're going to give you a whole bunch of gear when you get there. You know, the, the NBC Sochi t-shirts and polo shirts and stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, you know, I can't, I can't do that. And we were the cable show in the middle of the day. They were kind of like, I'll oh, do whatever you want. And it became a thing. And now we can't stop. We can't give up. I will have 
like a possum and a raccoon stapled to my head until <laughs> but I don't even have any of my own hair. You're still going to get big hair um, because it's, it's part of what I do. It's part of the fun. And I, it's part, it gives an opportunity for me to perform, which is what I love to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got the dream job and it all has happened miraculously and magically. And NBC has been awesome in giving me and Tara our own voices and not micromanaging and not telling us how to do what we do. No one's ever tried to package us or script us or put us in a box. And that has helped us thrive and grow and and keep this going. I think, uh, have you ever seen the Australian show, Kath and Kim? This is a random question, but uh, if, if you heard of it or seen it before. Why is that so familiar to me? They did do an American version of it. It, it wasn't fantastic. But um, I was going to say, in the lead up to Brisbane, you've got nine years to watch it. It's not, a, it's not a long show. But look at some of their fashion choices and use it when you're in a TV in Australia because, like, it will it will fit in extremely well. I do actually ask one question. Sorry, Colin, for jumping in on your question, but you touched on the Saturday Night Live thing and Tara. Is Tara in your pocket right now? Do we need to... <laughs> I don't have a pocket. I just right. have my nipples. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is Australia. We're not allowed to show nipples, Johnny. I should have uh, mentioned that before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the one thing when before Ben gets to his important question about you know your recent project with one of our other shows here, uh, when he sort of mentioned to me that you'd done commentary for that show, I'm like, well, this is basically Johnny Weir because I'm lucky enough. Up until recently, I had access to American channels and stuff like that. And, like you said, you, you rattle off all these things. It's like, Johnny Weir does that. He does that. Are you and Tara basically just at this point competing with Ryan Seacrest to see who gets <laughs> more shows? Like, well, How many projects are in the works right now that we haven't seen? Like, is there a variety show, a movie coming? There. Okay, so that's a. it's been a fun process for Tara and I to go on meetings at every channel with every production company and finding people that get us in terms of entertainment can be hard. I mean, so many people are like, when's the reality show coming? When, when is this? When is that? We had an award-winning podcast together. Um, it's good, isn't it? it? You're on an competition. Award. Yeah, we're on a award. We should mention it. We're award-winning too. It's behind me. Were we right? I, I went through the, the pitch email. Don't worry. Okay, good. <laughs> That's quite, you only do award-winning podcasts. That's what it is, Johnny. We, we all stick together. It's fine. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a big part of it, to be fair. Yeah, um, that's all good. But, you know, we we didn't want to revisit a podcast because when we did it, it was it was successful, and then we had trouble with our scheduling and making it work because we live on opposite coasts and everything. And um, it, it there are, the world is our oyster. The Olympics work is definitely our our happy place. It's our home. And you know, Tara and I have so many things in common in the way that we entertain, but we also want to maintain the fact that we're both two very different people and we have different passions and different stuff that we do. Um, she recently hosted a, a wedding show and she had the most gorgeous wedding in the whole world. And she has an expertise to it. And she was hosting that wedding show. Um, I host Eurovision in the United States. I mean, we still like to take projects like that, but we've been pitched a lot of things, but nothing has sung to us yet. And getting a production company to really understand, yeah, it's a girl and a gay guy, but it's different. Like we really, really love each other and we have a very heartfelt relationship and, and getting, you know, the, the television pitch process, I'm sure you guys are, are no strangers to it, but it's so many people, so many steps. And um, even just getting a meeting with people can be difficult at times, but we have people coming to us asking for meetings and um, we'll find a place that works best for us. We're not competing with Ryan Seacrest, Yes. Yeah. But I, I hope <laughs> like we could totally 
manage a, a late night show. Oh yeah. I mean, we're, mm -hmm. I turn 40 next year. So, I mean, with age comes gravitas and there are all these rules in television, you know, to do a late night variety sketch comedy show, you have to be of a certain gravitas, a certain stature. So basically when I'm 70, I'll have it. <laughs> um, but no, the, honestly, it's such a wonderful place to be in because the world's our oyster and we can pick and choose the things that we do and the things that we love. And um, that's the best place to be I love as that. opposed to in something that's quick. Which, and she also gets to do Jim Carrey shows in Kidding, right? Like, did you ever not yeah. get to, did you get a, an invitation to work with Jim Carrey at all? I didn't. So I was so proud of her. And, and that's the thing. We applaud each other. I mean, it's, it, we're never, figure skating and sports teach you to be so competitive, but we never compete with each other. And we've gone into broadcasting booths for other sports. The, the uh, commentators, they don't even look at each other. There's no rapport. They'll stand on opposite sides of the booth. Um, Tara and I are basically sitting on top of each other, in nuzzled pockets. on often in pockets, often for warmth. Um, <laughs> and it's just, it's energy, it's vibes, it's, it's love. And, and we, we don't compete for, for word count. We don't compete for airtime. If she's got something great to say, she says it. If I do, I say it. And we step back for one another and figure skating can really teach you to be very cutthroat and very on top of one another when it comes to talking. I mean, look how long I'm talking. I'm not even giving you guys the host of the show an opportunity it's to talk. Easiest Sunday um, morning I've ever spent in my life, Johnny. Exactly. It's fine. <laughs> it's Thank show. you. But, um, you know, the pride that I have for her and that she has for me is just, it, it's so sticky, sweet, and sappy and honey covered that so many people ask us, is it real or is it just for TV? It is so real. The amount of messages I get when I post videos of me practicing and she's telling me, she's giving me notes. She's like, that song made me cry, that movie made me cry. You can do that a little bit better. <laughs> and that's that's our relationship. And it always will be. And I, I had my stint on a Netflix show acting basically mm. as myself. And she had her acting gig and she had her hosting gig and I had my hosting gig. And then we come together. It's like no time has passed. We don't even have to FaceTime when we do commentary from our homes. Um, in the pods that, that we have all of the stuff that's set up in our houses um, so that we can call the Grand Prix, for example. We don't even FaceTime. We just can feel the energy based on our breath through the microphone. So it's it's very unique, very special, and very rare in broadcasting. You need to teach us some stuff because Colin and I secretly hate each other. So this is just this is a, this is a, this is a chore to do this. Johnny, but we're going to get to our, our final questions, but I, I can't not talk about Eurovision. Now, I, I was living in the states last year and i i was worried in may i'm like how am i going to watch eurovision this is a country that every time you say to somebody i'm going to watch eurovision they look at you and what the hell is that is that that you know that netflix movie or whatever it was i find it nbc peacock there you are and i was absolutely entranced i'm not <laughs> here to disparage on australia's commentators but you shat all over them. That is that is what I will say. <laughs> you were that good. And I loved every single... I was sad this year that I wasn't in the States to watch your coverage of it. I mean, obviously, we could sit here for another hour talking about this, but was this a dream to be able to front a Eurovision coverage? And particularly as well, you've got that added benefit of educating an entire nation on something that they don't really know a lot about. Right. This, okay, so I've been a Eurovision fan for, for quite a long time. Since I first uh, had it on my radar was probably uh, when Dima Bilan won for Russia and Yevgeny Plushenko skated on the stage. Like mm -hmm. that was my first real vision of Eurovision. 
and American TV didn't cover it for a very long time. And I had, um, it, it feels really disrespectful to keep mentioning Russia, but I had Russian satellite channels in my home because it helped me with my language skills to, to hear it and watch the news and that kind of stuff. So I watched Eurovision on the Russian channels and, uh, and I just got more and more and more rabid about it every year. So cut to the Beijing Olympic games, the majority of NBC's commentators did not actually travel to Beijing because the uh, COVID quarantine was so uh, strict that if we even had an inkling or a tickle, we'd go into quarantine for 21 days and completely miss the broadcast. They'd have no backups there. It was just a logistical nightmare. So the majority of our broadcasts actually happened from the States, which was, it was, it was rough to commentate the Olympics from a studio, mm. but it was, it was the safe thing to do for the network. And um, I think Tara and I nailed it. There was a, it you was did a big, okay. Yeah, but it was it was a big, hard Olympics to cover. Um, there were just so many dramatic stories in figure skating, especially um, with the doping violation of an Olympic favorite and, uh, you know, no audience and it wasn't as big and sparkling as usual. So it was a hard one from the outside looking in. But Tara and I, I think, did a good job. But the benefit of being at our studios in uh, Stamford, Connecticut, which is where the campus is for NBC Sports. The benefit of that was that all of our people were under one roof. So all of Peacock was there, all of Nightly News was there, all of the Today Show was around. So every time I'd walk down a hallway, because I'm not I'm not really a cubicle person, I don't know if you can, can imagine me <laughs> kind of in a bullpen at, at our, our studios, but I go in when they need me to go in. And I walk in, I do hair and makeup, I do my job and I leave. Um, but this gave me the opportunity to see everyone and to meet everyone. And essentially, every time I walked down a hallway and I saw a peacock, peacock person, which is our streaming service, um, who is our host of Eurovision, I would kind of walk by and let it echo through these big, massive hallways and just say, I really want to host Eurovision. <laughs> I love Eurovision. It's a dream of mine to host Eurovision. And... Um, it stuck. I manifested that thing so hard. And it was the week before Eurovision uh, 2022 that I got the call that they wanted to do a bespoke. That's what they called it, a bespoke version of Eurovision. And it was a dream come true. It was like easy peasy because I already follow all of the national finals. I download all of the songs. I still have one of the spinny wheel iPods. I'm not modern. Um, <laughs> so those. Yeah, I download them all on iTunes and I plug my my iPod into the computer and it downloads onto the iPod so that I can skate to it or listen to it in my car. Um, I'm that kind of a, a Eurovision fan. So it was just like nothing. And then my pronunciations, my my thrill of being a citizen of the world. And I, I love, there's been no greater education in my life aside from sports than travel. I've gotten to see so many things and be exposed to so many cultures and languages and ideas and and shapes and colors and all of this stuff that I love bringing that back to the United States where I saw some study recently where 70% of Americans have never left their tri-state area. So for me to go on all these great adventures and to bring back the things that I've learned or the things that I love to my country makes me so proud. And then to have a front row seat 
to the dress rehearsals that we get to watch streaming so we know kind of what we're in for for the show. I mean, it is a Eurovision fan's dream, my job. Manifested it, love it. I hope they have me for forever and ever and ever. Um, we're already talking about next year actually traveling to Ooh, Sweden. I was going to ask you that. Like, is, is that on the cards? Because that's... I'm pushing hard. I'm pushing push, hard. Push hard. Which, I mean, can you... Because obviously this is maybe a, a question for another time, but like the broadcasters are the ones who essentially send the entrance. So now that you're this face of, of Peacock, NBC's involved, can you be like, hey, Eurovision, we're NBC. Australia's I'm in not- it. I want America no. in there. No, I, I don't think America should be in Eurovision because even the fact that the world had a vote this year mm. was, of course, all poo-pooed on. Oh, America's going to throw this whole contest. America shouldn't be long in this at all. We've put I up with it in Australia for eight years, Johnny. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> we get it every year. That's why the televote hate <laughs> us. <laughs> but um, we tried the American Song Contest, mm. and I don't know how well it did with ratings and stuff, but for me as a purist, it wasn't the Eurovision Song no. Contest. But um, this year I got to vote in the Artistic Award, which is voted on by the commentators. Who'd you vote for? Can you tell us? So I voted for, for Spain. Oh, okay. Um, do well in in the grand scheme of things, but I really loved Spain's performance, and um, I don't know if we have that many Eurovision was... viewers on, on this, so I won't dive too deep. But Spain had a really beautiful performance and a great song, um, but it was not beloved the world over. It wasn't cha cha cha, was it? <laughs> oh my gosh, and yeah, he was so good. Um, but Lorraine, she she really she deserved to win. Iconic. I mean, she sang. And um, anyway, Eurovision is a passion and it's something that I can sink my claws into for many years to come. I have so much fun doing it. And again, I like the educational side of it, but I love the performance and, and just regaling people with stories and, and what this song means and, and these languages and just exposing little kids like me to the great big world out there around you. And that's what was Uh, so good about watching your coverage, Johnny, was because again, it's sort of, it's that education level. It's if you're not from a place like even with Colin, like Colin as a Canadian, not really exposed to it. We've had to explain it to him a lot, but watching your coverage, it was, it's just that level where anybody can tune in, pick it up. And if they don't understand it, you're there to help them along the way. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. But I mean, to be fair, it's it's one great note about sports commentary that I got early in my career. I, I may not know what cameras to look at, but I do know that for a lot of our bigger shows, the U.S. National Championships are on the weekend primetime television, and the Olympic Games obviously are, are huge. So 30,000 feet is the note that I got. So it isn't about explaining a precise turn on the ice. It's explaining what a turn is, mm. for example. So it's it's a really delicate dance of not being condescending and being welcoming of, of casual fans of figure skating while not alienating the hardcore skating fans that tune into every event, even if they have to wake up in the middle of the night. It's a delicate dance for sure. But um, educating people about my sport and my world is something that's very important to me because if I want, you know, so many sports and professions are kind of losing traction to being a TikTok star or an influencer with the kids these days, that I think it's my duty to educate people on on this sport and that 
you know, it looks crazy, like to strap knives onto your feet and go twirl on an ice cube, but you can do it. You can try it if you want to. And, and this is what it's all about. So, um, speaking to everyone instead of just someone, I think is, is something that I try to think about when I broadcast. Great message. Love that. Definitely love that. Johnny, we're going to close this out with a set of fun, random, silly questions, which I think will fit in. one word answer things? Nah. I mean, it's... it's, Whatever whatever you you want. There's there's even if you want to draw, there is a drawing element to it. It's completely optional, but you can draw something and send it into us and we can share it to the world. Oh, uh, you know what? It'll... I'm not, I'm not a great artist. I feel like most of it ends up being a bit phallic, so I'm going to stay away from drawing. But if it's something that I might be, I can make um, a bunny out of the letter B. I learned that in school. Oh, I need to see that now. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll send that over. Please do. I definitely want to see that. But so, to, a bit of context. So, Team Canada would give their athletes ahead of Rio and Pyeongchang sort of a, a written questionnaire that they would fill in. And they haven't done it since. We're a bit sad, but we like to get some perspective. So Colin and I, I know I haven't really let Colin talk a lot in the rest of this interview, but it's all right. It's Canada Day. He's celebrating things for you today. <laughs> exactly. Um, we will uh, We will alternate. So I'm going to start off with right now, Johnny Weir, what is your favourite all-time Olympic moment? Mine or someone else's? It can be anything. It can be yours. It can be something you watched on TV. Uh, entirely up to you. Okay, so there are definitely two that stick out, three that stick out immediately. So it's hard to choose one, so bear with me. It's fine. So the first, obviously, watching Oksana Bayul win the Olympic gold medal in 1994. And these are figure skating ones because that's my world and they stick out the most. Um, in Sochi, I watched Yuzuru Hanyu win his first Olympic gold medal in a costume that I had designed. Oh, nice. And I knew him when he was just a little boy and then grow into this great champion. And that was a very special moment. Um, and the last is a moment from Mawasada, a great Japanese figure skater. She was always one that was a favorite for the gold, but for one reason or another, just didn't get there. And she was a multi-world champion. She'd won every title under the sun, the Olympics were supposed to be hers, but she faced really strong competition. And in Sochi, in the short program, she she didn't do it. And she was way down in the rankings, I think something like 18th place. And this is a woman that should have been challenging for the gold. 18th place. And um, I think it was that year that they started reversing the order. So whatever, uh, the first place after the short program skated last in the competition. It may have not been, but... I, something like that. Anyway, she skated very early in the free skate and she's somebody that we would expect to see in that final group of six live television around the world, uh, doing multiple triple axles and just being incredible. And her short program was so devastating. And she came back in the free skate stronger than anybody I've ever seen perform at an Olympic games. It's rare that when you're under the bright lights, you have the performance of your life. It's rare that you'll be better than your best performance in practice because you have all of that pressure and all of those eyeballs on you and it changes the perspective and the feeling of what you're doing. But she fought so hard and it's one of two times I've cried as a broadcaster watching somebody have a breakthrough or have a performance. So 
um, aside from Oksana and Yuzu, I think watching Mao have that free skate, the perfect free skate that would have won her an Olympic gold medal. Mm. Um, it, it was heartbreaking. It was devastating and it was so empowering and it was so inspiring. I think that's probably my favorite Olympic moment. Just jumping in before Colin there, what was the second moment that made you cry? Um, so uh, it was right after the start of Russia's war in Ukraine. And we were commentating the World Figure Skating Championships. And it was after Russia and Belarus had been banned from international competition. But Ukraine still sent a team to the World Championships. And um, it was so hard to watch the Ukrainian team perform because you knew it had been many weeks since they'd been able to train properly. If they hadn't fled to another country, they were still, if they were even skating at all, um, having such a hard time of it. And Vanish um, Muratka, he he skated in the men's short program in a t-shirt that said Ukraine on it and skated a clean performance. And the athletes were each other's uh, cheering section and coaches, and they were with each other in the kiss and cry because the coaches couldn't leave Ukraine or couldn't get to the world championships. And um, of course, funds and resources were placed elsewhere, but Ukrainian athletes were um, competing to show the world that they're still here, they still stand, they're still uh, fighting for their country. And I was so moved by by uh, not necessarily just the performance, but but the emotion around his performance and everything that he would have had to go through just to get there. It was like nine flights and two days and and it just, it broke my heart. And, um, I cried, uh, he, he was, he was victorious and had a moment that he could be so proud of in front of the world. And obviously the world was in so much support of him and of the Ukrainian team, but it just, I lost my, my ish watching him. I, I just was sobbing and had the hardest time talking through my voice cracking like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a moment that I think everyone should have cried for. This next one, um, considering all the stuff you've done, I have a feeling that somebody out there listening is about to create a comic book based on your answer to what would be your superpower if you could have any superpower. Oh. Wow. I mean, there are so many. <laughs> uh, obviously, flying would be very cool. But I feel like teleportation Mm. It might be my superpower. Be convenient. So you could you could be in two places at once. It could be convenient. Um, I could zip in and zip out of Hermes, and they wouldn't even know where that bag went. Um, <laughs> or toilet seats. Or yeah. toilet seats. So I would I would use it for for a felony. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, I definitely think that would be my superpower. We want that honesty. We want that honesty. I'm hoping for an answer for this next question. If not, I will have a follow-up. What is your favorite sports movie? Wow. Okay. So I'm, I'm a dork and I love a documentary. Okay. I, I love a sad documentary because when you watch a sad documentary, you can appreciate your life not being as sad as the documentary. But with that said, I've watched a bunch of sports movies. Um, there was one, I forget what it was called. It covered the Lithuanian 
basketball team competing at Barcelona, I think it was, in their Grateful Dead tie-dyed uniforms. Loved that one. And I love, okay, it's an old school American skating movie. Uh, it's called The Cutting Edge. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. a lot of people know it from the English-speaking world, so you guys should know it. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the, it was that time and place before I skated where I was just so into figure skating and the figure skating world um, when people still thought the Olympics were were performed under spotlights. And it was just so over the top and campy, and I still watch it to this day. I've got to ask the question, is it true John Hedda's character in Blades of Glory is based on you? Oh, yeah. They called me before <laughs> the the film came out just to let me know. I think so that I wouldn't sue them for, uh, <laughs> for violating uh, life rights or, or likeness rights or whatever it could be. Um, but they called and said, hey, Johnny, uh, we're, we're going to make fun of you in the movie. And it was it was like Will Ferrell's person that called me. And um, later I was I was filming a scene with Ben Stiller and Will Ferrell for Zoolander 2. It got cut. And I, I was going to ask call. you about that because I, I, I went back to watch Sue we and I couldn't find, find you. So I was assuming maybe it got cut. I'm actually the first picture they show in the credits. So that's my claim to fame. I, I still get um, SAG credits for it and I still get residual checks for like 20 cents. Wow. Uh, every while. But um, yeah, so... I I got the call and they said, we're going to make fun of you. And John Hedder's character obviously uh, was making fun of my swan costume with his peacock costume and just some of his the way he approached press conferences. Because at that time in my life, I was already delivering press conferences in Russian, French and English. So he spoke Japanese in the movie. And um, I, I thought it was the coolest thing. I mean, it's the highest form of flattery to to be able to parody someone. Yeah, um, and Will Ferrell's later, weirdly connected to your loves, like figure skating, and now obviously Eurovision. So I don't know. Maybe maybe he follows me. I don't know. He's he does. he's a man. He uh, so I'd never been an actor before, and I we talked briefly about me hitting marks and how difficult that was. But uh, they invited me to be in Zoolander too because Zoolander loves a celebrity cameo, and I I use the word celebrity loosely. Okay, I don't think of myself <laughs> like that. I'm a person that does really cool stuff. Um, and sometimes people know who I am, but, um, they called and asked if I would do it. So I went to Rome and I, that's where they were filming. <laughs> I went to you Rome. You just go there for fun. Like, oh, sorry, I'm just going to Rome tomorrow, Ben. Uh, don't mind yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, I'll be there. Um, so I just kind of waited around for a few days and then they were like, okay, we need you on set finally. So I was playing a prison warden in roller skates that was taking Derek or Ben Stiller to visit Mugatu, Will Ferrell, in prison. And my scene wasn't with Will, but it was with Ben Stiller, who was also directing himself as he was working. And I had to deliver lines, and there weren't many of them, but I was also on roller skates, inexplicably, I guess the skating. Um, (laughs) We were filming in this old kind of hippodrome thing, tunnel so it looked like a a weird prison world and at the end of the tunnel was just a wall of camera sound directors papers just people and then on the other behind me i didn't realize it until after our first take but will ferrell was sitting there with his headphones on watching every take that i did and was just so excited he's a big olympics fan um like it it 
boggles my mind when I meet famous people and they're excited to meet me. Wow. That's a cool thing that yeah. happens. Um, but anyway, that's, that's that next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, next one, I know we're going to get some type of good story with this one. Uh, what is your funniest childhood memory? Okay. So it's Olympic themed. <laughs> good. And, um, it, it's competitive. It, it shows like what a crazy sort of badass competitive child I was. So I would create a backyard Olympics, especially around Olympic time, but I would make my dad build me balance beams and rings and equestrian jumps that I'd take my dog over and jump myself. <laughs> we had a crack. But I would have all of my friends over. And the fact that I still had friends at this point was shocking, but I would have all of my friends over to compete in the backyard Olympics. But I was in charge. I was basically the IOC president of the backyard Olympics. I chose the sports that we played so that I would be so supremely superior to all of them that they would never beat me and they would all be crying. Wow. Um, I think looking back as an adult now, it set me up for the life that I've led and very, very fun. Because I don't think of myself as competitive with other people. I'm competitive with myself but not so competitive against other people. But in that shining moment as a child, I was out for blood. Wow. For the neighborhood. Like you will never run faster than me, Justin. <laughs> do you want me to redo the reintroduction? Like, you know, 87 time backyard gold medal Olympic winning uh, all sports Olympian, Johnny Weir, um, you know? But, I mean, nowadays you have to have proof for everything and there's no official paperwork. They we believe you, Johnny. We, we believe you. And also good luck in your run for IOC president after Thomas retires. I look forward to uh, seeing what you can do <laughs> no, for the, no, no, no. the Olympic I movement. I, I hate gossip. I hate politics. I hate backstabbing. I hate bullying. And I feel like all of that goes into to having to have a position like that. So I would never run for any kind of crazy office. Bring back the Backyard um, Olympics. So you could just do it in, in whatever style you want. Been there, done that, did it. I, I, I think that there are so many wonderful things about the Olympics and the Olympic movement. I don't want to change everything. I have words, though, for the people that want e-games to be a part of the Olympics. That is so disrespectful to me. Not that they aren't great at what they do, but, like, I sacrificed my life and body to a sport to be an Olympian. Yep. So I don't like the idea of esports coming in just because there's a lot of money behind it. That's I, I look I, I I will firmly agree and say that if you're bringing esports, bring in podcasting because it's isn't it yes. the same thing? We're sitting here <laughs> we and we got to get something in front of a microphone. I'm a mean mahjong player. Let's do that in the Olympics. Exactly. So, you know, let's bring it. Why Being not? Able to do a study in like 19 languages. Great. Watching paint dry. It's it's hard. I think you got to be very focused and see which parts of the paint dry. Um. Your favorite pump-up song, Johnny, on your click-wheel iPod when you're out there about to hit the ice. What was that one song that got you in the mood? Fighter by Christina Aguilera. Oh. That was always oh. a pre-performance song. Great jam. Love it. Uh, how about the most recent TV show you binge-watched is? So, okay, I don't know if it's for comfort purposes, but I like to go back and re-watch the things that I enjoy because generally I have my iPad. Thank God I know how they work but up on its little like little triangle stand thing. 
and it's just on all the time. I don't have a lot of televisions in my house. Like I'm a firm believer there shouldn't be a TV in your in your bedroom because your bedroom is for sleeping and babies. You know, like I don't want to watch TV. (laughs) So (laughs) truth. But um, he's calling about that. He doesn't know. So you know, he he needs some education. (laughs) I think. (laughs) But I've got my iPad, and I will be listening to shows that make me comfortable. And it's like family. Like I talked about Schitt's Creek with Moira Rose, Downton Abbey, Weeds. I love The Great, if you've seen it. Uh, The Magicians. There are so many that just make me feel in my happy place. But one that I've been rewatching a lot lately, it's from the 80s and very early 90s. And it is called Mama's Family. It oh, I, I know it. Vicky Lawrence as a sassy grandma. And sometimes with as modern as the world has become, sometimes I like to go back to those naive days. Yeah. Where, oh, male actors don't wear makeup. What's a fax machine? Like sometimes I just like to to hearken back to those days. So lately I've been binge re-watching Mama's Family. <laughs> I have to ask you because you mentioned it, not that recent, but maybe the last show I actually technically binge watched, Downton Abbey. That's a show that I never thought I would get into. You never into. shuts up about it either, Johnny. Jesus. I never, I literally, <laughs> my wife and I just on a whim decided, let's check out the show. Everybody's been talking about it for a decade and a half. And we binge watched this to such a great extent that like I would be in one room watching an episode and then I would tell my wife, okay, I got through the next three episodes. You got to catch up. And then tonight when the kids go to bed, we watch the rest. I have to ask you who your favorite character is on it. Oh gosh. Well, okay. So first of all, Lady Edith is in my top three, like least favorite yes. television ever. <laughs> She's right up there with AJ Soprano and Jock from, from Game of Thrones. Um, so my favorite is definitely Maggie Smith, the Dowager Countess of Drantham. Um, I'm also a big Lady Mary fan. I know she's a bit cold oh. and a bit opaque, but she's just so magnificent. I, I told my wife, I'm like, you know what? If you ever die, I'm going to look for Lady Mary as your replacement. Sorry. <laughs> and you can't tell people that. You cannot tell your wife that you're going to go hunting for Lady oh, Mary. If, if you only knew my wife and how many people she hunts for. <laughs> Johnny, we had the deferral of point sisters on here a couple weeks back, and I, 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 was, I had to message his wife constantly going, like, it's okay, he's still here. Like, you can check in on him. Like, <laughs> I was very worried that he was going to become single that day. Last question for you, Johnny. The most important what is your favorite meatloaf song (laughs) (laughs) you weren't expecting that were you (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i like that he's going to google he's got a google i love this (laughs) i know i know the song Uh, (laughs) sing it first johnny sing it (laughs) no just you hold on a second <laughs> the famous one. This is what uh, Olivia should have been doing when we brought I this. Qu- oh, we even get the first oh, singing on it. Yeah, oh. I don't afford the rights to me singing that, but um, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Which um, <laughs> to this day, have we ever worked out? I mean, sadly gone now, Mister Loaf. But uh, I don't know what it was that he wouldn't do. So. Hey, it could be a myriad of things. Also, I need to add White Lotus and Hacks to our previous question. I've <laughs> and deep. I've rewatched. I've been down like an HBO rabbit hole of late. Also, The Outsider on HBO. You didn't say Chasing Gold on uh, NBC Peacock, of course, Johnny. Now available on all streaming platforms. Great show, by the way. I enjoy watching it. 
And I, I mean, I've been on that a couple of times talking about figure skating. Mike Tirico does does a wonderful job with that. And um, I, I love that NBC is promoting Olympic sports constantly because then the the athletes within it aren't just like, oh, who is that guy yeah. when the Olympics come around? So it's people that, that you can really get behind. And that's something with all of the competition on with television and within streaming platforms and things like that a lot of the athletes stories get lost and yeah. as a broadcaster it's my duty to tell those stories but um i think it's important that that uh, that people know who the athletes are and, and can support and I think yeah. it's particularly because, as, as we know, an Olympic cycle, a lot of eyes are only know, as you said, these people are every four years, but you all are on a journey for those four years before you get to a couple of weeks every year in Olympics. Johnny, before we let you go, I don't even feel we need to get you to tag your social media. You're Johnny Weir. Everybody's following you already. But if people want to follow you, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere else, where can they keep up to date with all the great things you're doing? Well, it's at Johnny, J-O-H-N-N-Y, G Weir on Instagram, I think my official Facebook is Johnny Weir. I have a TikTok oh. that I'm not good at. That's <laughs> at Johnny Weir. I really am just on there to watch other people's videos of like <laughs> their, their kitchens. Um, I'm off Twitter. Smart move. Oh, and, and um, I have a Johnny Weir Skating Academy instagram and soon i'll have a facebook official facebook for that as well fantastic but that's for, cool now that i've retired i i'm diving into coaching and and doing things a little bit differently mixing it up for american skating and and uh, i'm very excited about that so um you can follow all of my progress on at johnny g weir and then of course at Johnny Weir Skating Academy where you can see all the kids and all my coaches and stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, next time that Colin and I just happen to be in your neck of the woods, we'll come along to the Skating Academy and you will have the hardest time coaching any individuals you have in your entire life. So uh, we <laughs> I can... doubt that very much. <laughs> Johnny. I've had to try to teach my father to skate. So wow. that's a well, He's I, a biker. I'm very competitive about wanting to be the worst at something. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, it's been an absolute honor to sit here and, and learn so much and have you so open and honest about everything throughout your journey we really appreciate your time and i will always keep my toilet seat locked up every time uh, i'm ever near <laughs> so be careful because if i get my superpower and you have just a toilet seat just sitting there you're liable to lose it so <laughs> no it's been, it's been my pleasure to to be on the podcast and, and thank you very much for what you do and for bringing light to the olympics it, it's really important as an olympian um, that there are people out there that love and respect the things that we do so thank you very much An absolute incredible chat, Colin. And I, I'll be absolutely honest with you. When you when you get someone like Johnny Weir on the show, right? You, you obviously, it's it's not a simple case of I'm going to message him on Instagram or I'm going to find a Twitter account or something like that. Obviously, you know, there's management involved and there's sort of back and forth thing about arranging a time. You honestly think with someone like Johnny Weir that you're going to get, oh, he's 20 minutes, he's, he's 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. you, you know, And that's no disrespect to people on that level it's just it's we're a small fish in the pond when it comes to interviews and other things along those lines so honestly coming into this we thought we might even just have a short time the fact that when we talked to johnny off air about sort of how long we had he's like yeah, okay no that's fine we can sort of go that way and that we end this interview at nearly the two hour mark one of our longest ever interviews just absolutely incredible and the beauty of that is too we could have talked to him for another two hours as well because yeah. i feel there was so much stuff that we didn't even scratch the surface on but i mean just an amazing chat. 
I'm buzzing right now. And in all honesty, I've probably said this about 20 times in previous interviews, but this is one of my favorite interviews we've ever had on this show. That was absolutely yeah. incredible. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I, you, I was wondering, like, do we bring up, you know, our, our like uh, pre-interview questions, like what the time of stuff like that, but to put it in even more perspective, I mean, he basically was like, oh, you know, you know, we'll see how this goes. You know, I'm okay with for an hour, whatever. We finished the interview and he's like, wow, did we just go two hours? Like it, even he didn't realize how much yeah. time had passed. And, and I mean, this guy is a storyteller. You can tell not just how many great stories he has, but how long he's worked behind a microphone and, and, you know, through even just his own TV shows and, and documentaries and stuff like that, just knowing how to tell a story. I mean, when we do our next best of episode, we might as well just put out the Johnny Weir in our episode on its own. Yeah, I think there's definitely some long clips in there, but I, I'm, I'm so glad he actually brought up the Eddie Maguire situation here in Australia. I talked to you a little bit during the yeah. week about sort of that because anybody in Australia who remembers those Olympics, that was that was huge. This was sort of, I want to say, around that period where, you know, things like Twitter and Facebook were really engaging that conversation and we were sort of in that time where people were calling out things that 10 years prior was just conversation that was accepted. And, okay, no, these sort of comments and conversations shouldn't be accepted. Let's bring this up. And it essentially came down to Eddie Maguire with a comedian in this country called Mick Malloy who were, I guess, making disparaging comments about Johnny and kind of being a bit homophobic around that. So that created like big international or national headlines, obviously reached Johnny. But the fact that Johnny could sort of, as you heard him say, takes a lot to offend him. He took it on the chin and could literally come out here, be invited by Eddie Maguire, who, I mean, I don't know who the biggest, tell me right now who's the biggest Canadian TV star. Who is the Ryan Seacrest of Canada? Like all on every show, you can never get sick oh, of them. I mean, there's a uh, Renault guy, Brian Baumler, who seems to have 16 shows just on sure, his own. That guy, Brian Baumler, like he used to literally be called Eddie Everywhere because he hosted everything. He was a host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? He was an AFL commentator. He would host like our TV shows. Like he would just everything. He was literally the president of the network for one moment. He was that big of a deal. So he was sort he of- He was the, Johnny Weir. <laughs> he, was, he was Johnny Weir, basically. <laughs> so a very big, and still to this day, he is quite a prominent figure in Australian media and business in general. But to have him have that with Johnny, to, to have that kind of connection and everything along those lines was, was fantastic to hear. So I love that story. Among all the other stories, the Olympic stories, we brought up the Goodwill Games. When are we doing a Goodwill Games retrospective episode, Colin? <laughs> uh, bring back the Goodwill Games. Um, and the toilet seat. I mean- that is absolutely brilliant. I, I love the fact that the one thing that was missing mainly from the Olympic Village was a quilt and a toilet seat. Yeah, I always love to get those behind the scenes stories, you know, the things that nobody's actually going to hear about on air usually. Um, what you mentioned with that that Eddie McGuire story, I, mean, I think the number one thing I'm going to always remember, you know, years from now when the individual questions have passed, what I'll remember Johnny Weir from from this interview is just the type of positive attitude this guy yeah. has, you know? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously anybody who's been in figure skating, dealt with politics, stuff like that, dealt with the the amount of medium attention that he's had for him to really not have any negative feelings at all and just say, yeah, whatever, it doesn't bother me. Uh, and to actually come up with a positive attitude in most situations. I mean, this is the type of guy that you need speaking like, uh, what, what do you call those? Like um, those self-help seminars and stuff like that tony you know? robbins we're, we're just tony robbins yeah we're just adding lists of jobs that johnny we can make on <laughs> yeah i mean you're not busy enough but uh you know it keeps going along those lines too and uh, let's be honest 
Colin, you and I are basically Johnny Weir. We are award-winning podcasters. So um, we, we... We share a title with him. We are very connected. So uh, <laughs> there you go. But obviously a massive, massive thanks to Johnny for his time and his management for allowing us that chat and uh, simply fantastic. We have to get him on Eurovision, I think. Kind of uh, that, uh, that alone, that a whole conversation could have gone a very long way. But I will say, Colin, we are now only a couple of weeks away from our very first Pan Am Games coverage on this show. Now, I, I'm so excited for this. I'm a little bit disappointed that we didn't map this year out a little bit. It's been a busy year. Obviously, we've had the Women's World Cup. We've got this coming up. We've had some great interviews, all this kind of stuff, a year to go to Paris, all of these great things that we've got. We did have a European Games earlier on this year, which, I mean, we're none of us are European, so let's be honest, really. Let, to, to quote uh, Ferris Bueller, I'm not European. I don't ever plan on being European. Who gives a shit if they're socialists anyway? So who gives a shit if they've got a European Games anyway? I'll backtrack on my comment. The point is, Pan Am Games. I, I, I don't know what the point of that conversation was, Ben, but a couple of weeks away, Pan Am Games, I'm hitting myself. How pumped and excited are you? Because you get to lead something. I never let you talk in this episode, but <laughs> two weeks' time, you're, you're going to be hosting. You're going to be leading this. And Jared and I might only be reading Wikipedia because I don't even know if we can watch the bloody things yet. Yeah, I mean, Pan Am Games is, it's always like the Olympics, but slightly different. I mean, you're, you're going to get some you know, different sports. Actually, I'm curious how many uh, sports we're going to get that uh, maybe either aren't in the Olympics yet or uh, haven't quite gotten there yet. I'm, I'm already looking right here. Basque Pelota. Mm. Uh, I don't know exactly what that is. It's it's like a, a court sport. Um, we've got, well, we already got badminton, so we know that's a handball. There you go. You got somebody excited about it. another multi-sport event that has handball. Well, as we uh, obviously know earlier this year, talking to Haven, that uh, she she talked about her Pan Ams, and Canada have since that interview qualified for the Pan Am game, so we'll be able to keep a close eye on Haven's progress and Team Canada there. But I'm, I'm very excited for this just because, uh, again, I've, I've only really sort of followed it through you or kind of just with our guests on the show, learning about those experiences and everything along those lines. And I'm sort of only used to a Commonwealth Games from an Australian perspective, but obviously I've got close ties to Canada, love the country. We'll be rooting them along the US as well. Let's go Chile. Sure, why not? Let's just choose some random countries. But I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it plays out because it is in Chile, let's say that. And also the fact that I've never seen a Pan Am's opening ceremony before. I mean, are these like the Commonwealth Games where they got a giant fucking bull? Uh, or, you yeah. know, like, I mean, is it just sort of a bit off the cusp? And do we get great Chilean singers? I, I, I couldn't tell you a Chilean singer. I don't know. <laughs> singer. I don't know. Yeah, the, 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 they make a big deal about the Pan Am Games for the opening and closing ceremonies. When we had them here in Winnipeg, uh, probably one of the original like huge Canadian bands, the guess who most people know the song American woman. Uh, they reunited for like the first time in like 30 years or something like that, just to perform the closing ceremonies of Pan Am games. If nothing else, this will be our first opportunity to watch a multi-sport event and see break dancing. So if you, if you don't have the opportunity to see TV coverage or whatever, we have to at least include a commentary for breakdancing. We may oh. not do commentaries on every episode, but we got to do a breakdancing commentary. 100%. I'm definitely on board with that because uh, we're, we're going to do a Youth Olympics next year, but of course they're winter, so we're not going to get a chance to see it. So yeah, you're right. We haven't really had a, a chance to fully uh, see it. But uh, Basque Paletta almost looks like a version of like squash, but like it's against a wall. So like, you know, like... um. When I used to play tennis as a kid, they used to have like a wall and you would practice by just hitting a tennis ball up against the wall and sometimes you'd play like squash without the glass and, you know, similar yeah. to that. So I think that bowling, we're going to be doing 10-pin 
bowling at the com- <laughs> other Pan Am games, Colin. Um, which I, I talked about it before in the Commonwealth Games episodes. I know they did have 10-pin bowling in 98 in Kuala Lumpur. So uh, there's wakeboarding, there's water skiing. There's some sp- And speed skating and because sp- you got roller speed skating. Yeah, exactly. Like some of the um, artistic roller skating. So this is like what like Johnny could have gone to the Pan Ams yeah. in artistic roller skating, racquetball. So they don't have squash, but they go, oh, they do have squash. They love their, their freaking sports like this at the Pan Ams. They've got squash, racquetball, and basketball. Like, wow, this is, um, I'm on board. So I'm hoping that I can get some sort of coverage here in Australia. But uh, that is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. with some great interviews to bring you for the rest of the year. But seriously, we're only a couple of months away from closing out 2013, which, uh, 2013, um, in the past, apparently, 2023, <laughs> um, which then, of course, means we enter an Olympic year. I'm calling it an Olympic and a half year because we are going to be doing our first Youth Olympics come January and February, which uh, we've done junior Eurovision over on uh, Euros Vision, so I guess we can talk about children on this show. Um, but busy, busy year. Lots of things to cover Get excited. Do all the things we tell you to do at the episode. Like, subscribe, follow. If you want to see the video version of this interview, of course, too, available on YouTube. Highly, highly. I don't know why I'm speaking highly. I'm Downton Abbey all of a sudden. Highly recommended. Uh, You can stare at Johnny. (laughs) I don't know what's happened to me today. Um, But check that out and subscribe while you're on there as well. And, of course, go back and listen to some of our great other episodes. We've had some great figure skaters on the show, of course. Tessa Virtue, Eric Radford, just to name a few people out there. So uh, go back, listen to all of that. As Colin's getting his chin stroked. Um, (laughs) I I see a hand. Uh, Have you kidnapped someone in the house or is that Jamie? (laughs) Let me go, Jamie. (laughs) Let me go. Um, But Colin, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I'm I'm sorry I didn't let you speak much, but who gives a shit? Thank you for letting me keep my toilet seat. It's (laughs) closing. We got too many closings. Oh fuck! Let me hang on. Let me pull out the list. Uh, The Birmingham Bull, Jason Momoa, go left. Uh, You took the words right out of my mouth. uh, Which we have Johnny singing. uh, What a do for love. I'll just say it by. My name is Ben, and uh, enjoy your toilet seat. When the stars make you drool just like pasta fuzz, we'll add some water. Add some water. When you dance down the street with the cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, Signore. Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli that's amore, amore, that's amore. <laughs>